0: from WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Sterling Harjo, the showrunner and co-creator of the hit series Reservation Dogs. It's a comedy drama focusing on a small group of teenagers living on a native reservation in rural Oklahoma, wanting to escape the limitations of reservation life while also feeling compelled to stay. Many of the stories are drawn from Harjo's life growing up on a Muscogee Creek reservation. Also, Buzz Bissinger, author of the classic high school football book, Friday Night Lights, tells the story of college football stars turned marines who endured some of the most savage fighting in World War II. Bissinger's new book is called The Mosquito Bowl. And Ken Tucker reviews a collection of previously unreleased early Lou Reed demos. I'm waiting for the man. First News. If you haven't seen the hit TV series Reservation Dogs, the title should give you a sense of it. Set on a native reservation in Oklahoma, it's about a group of teenagers and the people surrounding them. The quirky way some of the characters constantly quote pop culture and use it as reference points seems to owe a debt to Quentin Tarantino films. The series is part comedy and part drama, about teenagers wanting to break away from the reservation and all the seeming dead ends it represents— while also finding reasons to stay. The characters face generational differences on the reservation and the confusion of growing up caught between traditional culture and pop culture, the spirit world and rap music. The series shows the importance of Native traditions while also mocking how tradition can be turned into sanctimonious pop culture cliches. My guest Sterling Harjo is the showrunner and a writer and director on the series, which he co-created with Taika Waititi. Harjo belongs to the Seminole and Muscogee nations. He's made independent films and documentaries about Indians in Oklahoma, where he grew up and continues to live. He also co-founded the indigenous comedy group called the 1491s, a reference to the year before Christopher Columbus landed in what is now America. Reservation Dogs is the first and only TV series where every writer, director, and series regular is indigenous. The second season of the FX show is now streaming on Hulu. Let's start with a scene from the first season. One of the teenagers, named Bear, has been planning to leave the reservation with his friends and start a new life in California. He's just been knocked down after being hit with paintballs by a rival group of teens. When he opens his eyes, he sees an Indian warrior from the spirit world mounted on his horse, and dressed in the kind of traditional warrior clothes you'd expect to see in a western. It's a funny scene, but the advice the spirit gives at the end is uh, pretty good advice. Bear is played by DeFaro Wunatai, and the spirit is played by Dallas Goldtooth. Aho!
1: Young warrior! Looks as though you've tasted the white man's lead. It's only paintballs. I've had many brothers and sisters meet the same fate in my time. Are
2: you crazy horse or sitting no
1: no no i'm not one of those awesome guys no i'm more of your uh, i'm more of your unknown warrior yeah you know my name william Knife Man. <laughs> <laughs> i was at the battle of little bighorn that's right i didn't kill anybody but i fought bravely well i didn't actually fight i actually didn't even get into the fight itself but i came over that hill real rugged like <laughs> i saw custer like that that yellow hair he was sitting there Son of the morning star, that guy right there. I really hated him. So I went after him, but then the damn horse hit a gopher hole, rolled over and squashed me. I died there. This horse actually, oh, And now I'm meant to travel the spirit world, find lost souls like you. The spirit world, it's cold. My nipples are always hard. I'm always hungry. Got it. Being a warrior, it's not always easy. You and your thuggy-ass friends, what are you doing for your people? It's easy to be bad. It's hard to be a warrior with dignity. Remember that. In my time, we gave everything. We died for our people. We died for our land. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna fight for?
3: Ah!
1: Nah, I just with you. But for real though, listen to what I said. Marinate on that. Oh.
0: I love that scene so much. And I love the series. Sterling Hartra, welcome to Fresh Air. And thank you for Reservation Dogs. Um, can you thank talk you. a little bit about coming up with a way to both satirize pop culture images of Indians and also just to come up with really comedic Indian characters, but also to create a sense of understanding of the importance of traditions? It's a lot to do all at once.
4: Yeah, real quick, Terry, so I'm a big fan. I remember being in college, driving around listening to your show, and I was like, I think I'd made, or I was like attempting to write a film, I believe. And I remember thinking to myself, I'll know I made it when I get on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks for making my dreams come true today. (laughs) Oh, thank you so
0: much for that. You made my
4: day. Uh, But yeah, you know, I think that that character in that scene... Um, is crucial, and I think you know most of the time people are very precious with native people, and like you know you don't this is no laughing matter, and you know this is very serious and stoic, and that's kind of how the world is trained to view us, and we realize like we need to bake in in this show like uh, permission to laugh with us, and I think that that spirit character. He comes in at this moment in the pilot. And it's like, if I asked most people in the world, draw a Native American, that's what they would draw. They would draw an Indian that was dressed in buckskins from the 1800s. They wouldn't draw me. They wouldn't draw any of the characters on the show. So it was almost like giving people some familiar territory and then turning it on its head. And it allows the audience to say, okay, isn't this funny? Like, we still think that Native people are like this. And yeah, in history, you know, some of us were like that, but isn't it ridiculous that we still think that they are? And so it gives people permission to laugh. I think it sort of welcomes them into Native humor and allows you to kind of get your footing as you watch the rest of the show.
0: Well, we're on the subject of permission. (laughs) I had asked you before we started, like, what word you like to use? Do you like to use Indian, Native American, indigenous? And the term that you don't want to use is Native American. But some people say that, you know, as a white person, like white people shouldn't use the word Indian. So... Before everybody kind of gets annoyed with me or I get annoyed with myself or you get annoyed <laughs> right. with me, just right. help me out here like what 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 works
4: um for me, I mean, look, I grew up, my grandma said Indian, so I'm not here to change what my grandma said, and it's what I know um I'm sorry that Christopher Columbus got it wrong, but that's what we call <laughs> ourselves, you know um and and and, and like we also, I also say native and I say indigenous, um, just depending on where I'm at and who, and who I'm talking to. I will enter; those are all interchangeable to me. So, a Native American is just a mouthful, you know. I don't have to sit around it. Just, it's just, you know, it waste time.
0: <laughs> all right. So, so uh, the series is called Reservation Dogs, uh, an homage to Reservoir Dogs, Quentin Tarantino's film. What did that film mean to you, and the sensibility that he created in it, which was really something new?
4: So. It came out when I was in college, and it was right as I discovered that I could be a filmmaker. Um, and you know, there's something about Tarantino's love for cinema. It's like that's the same thing as growing up as a native kid in rural Oklahoma. I, you know, My father had a friend who worked for the cable company, and that's the only way that we got cable. So I was able to watch movies uh, for free because his friend – hooked us up with a cable box that allowed us to watch HBO and Showtime. So I was a, you know, I just became immersed in like in movies and pop culture. MTV was out at the time. And I don't know, like, I, I think that when you're from a rural community, you know, that's kind of how you live your life. You almost like live your life. Through movies and through pop culture. And it just felt like the right. I mean, first of all, it's a catchy title. I'm not going to lie. But and I came up with that. Absolutely. But like, yeah. And, and then it was um, well, if we're going to have this show where these kids are living through and constantly referencing pop culture, like we have to tip our hat to the master of that.
0: Another thing that got me, like right from the start, is the series opens in episode one with an older DJ, a native DJ, who I think is on the reservation radio station, introducing the Iggy and the Stooges classic punk rock recording, I Want to Be Your Dog. And that was just between the title, Reservation Dogs, and Iggy and the Stooges, I thought, yeah, I'm going to watch this. (laughs) Why did you want to start with that song? Yeah, you know, like, well, first of all, it
4: references dogs. But second, I wanted it, by the way, that's my voice. I'm the radio DJ.
0: Oh, no, um, I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, oh, that's great. You know, but,
4: you <laughs> know I, I it references dogs, but also what it really references to me is this is shaking everything up. You hadn't seen a native story on TV like this. And this is going to be punk rock, you know, get ready. It's going to have this energy. We're going to, it's unapologetic and you're, we're going to drop you into it. I think that it tells people right off the bat, like, this is not what you're, this is not what you thought you were going to see.
0: When you were growing up, were you growing up like on the reservation or near the reservation?
4: Yeah. Well, right now there are, there's the, like right now I live on the Muscogee reservation, which is part of Tulsa. Um, Through a lot of complicated um, government policy and interactions with tribal governments that I can't go into because it'd be another show, Um, it was not identified as a reservation before, but it is now. But if you look at Oklahoma, it used to be Indian Territory, which was essentially one big reservation. It was, you know, and then of course oil and and the land run and all and other things disrupted that. But that's this is where Trail of Tears ended. This is where all of the tribes that were forcibly removed by the U.S. government we were brought to Indian Territory, which is Oklahoma now. Um, so essentially, it was one giant reservation. And you know, you go an hour in any direction in Oklahoma, or 30 minutes in any direction in Oklahoma, you're going to to be in a new tribal territory with tri- different tribal languages on the stop signs and on and on and on signage in the town, um, different c- culture, different customs, and I think there's something like thirty-eight tribes here. Um, so you grow up different when you're in Oklahoma as a native kid, you know, like I didn't feel different actually. Like I, like people know native culture, people know who native people are and it's a very diverse state. I mean, I think that not a lot of people know about Oklahoma and the diversity here. And, um, I don't know, it was something that I wanted to celebrate in this show, you know, growing up in Indian territory, uh, Oklahoma.
0: You know, in talking about the influence of pop culture on the characters, on the young characters in your show and some of the older characters, too, the younger characters are so influenced by black pop culture, by, by rap, their style of speaking. Um, I found that very interesting. And um, I'm wondering if there were many black people where you were growing up.
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, you know, mainly made up of white, native, and black people and all of those cultures mix and and collide and, you know, come together. Um, you know, the people in the show, they're not acting those accents, you know, that's where they come from and that's how they that's how they talk. Um, and, you know, as far as like rap being an influence on the culture, I don't know, I think like coming of age as rap was you know, reaching the height of popularity in rural Oklahoma and being a Native kid, we gravitated towards it. It gave Native kids a culture and an identity that they could grab a hold of. At a time where our own identity was a bit lost and our own identity was less celebrated, we could grab a hold of hip hop and that became something that we could identify with.
0: My guest is Sterling Harjo, the co-creator as well as a writer and director of the FX series Reservation Dogs. Season 2 is streaming on Hulu. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break, and Ken Tucker will review a previously unreleased collection of early Lou Reed demos, recordings Reed made while he was still living with his parents in Long Island. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend.
3: This message
5: comes from NPR sponsor TeleDoc. 92% of people who have used Teladoc have seen an improvement in their mental health. Teladoc's online therapy offers access to licensed therapists right from your phone. Get help with anxiety, stress, depression, and more. Choose the right therapist for your needs with sessions wherever you're the most comfortable. Download the app or visit teledoccom slash fresh air.
0: Let's get back to my interview with Sterling Harjo, the co-creator as well as a writer and director of the series Reservation Dogs. It's part comedy, part drama about teenagers growing up on an Indian reservation in Oklahoma, wanting to escape the dead ends they face on the reservation. It's an FX series. Season 2 is now streaming on Hulu. You're too young probably to have grown up on a diet of Westerns on TV, But um, did you watch many Westerns when you were growing up?
4: You know, my dad watched Westerns. So, yeah, we watched some. You know, there was a way to sort of separate what was happening in the Western for me. Like when you grow up and your grandma and your mom and your dad and everyone's native around you. And then you see this version of native people in these Westerns that are just the bad guys that are faceless and sort of like the zombies, you know, of the Western, like they're just there in the way. And the the white man has to sort of like exterminate them for Western expansion purposes and to tame the West or whatever, you know, like you don't, I don't recognize that as my people. So it was, it was, it wasn't painful to watch for me. You know, I could separate it. I do see the issues in that now, you know, like, uh, I have to explain to my kids why they can't watch Peter Pan, you know. Um, and 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 if there was a Western on, I would have to explain to them, you know, like everything. Be, all of a sudden becomes a, a a lecture, you know, where I'm having to talk about film analysis with my children, and you know that has an effect. I mean, I I, I like to think that it didn't, but it does have an effect. I believe.
0: Um. Can you tell us something about your parents?
4: yeah, my parents um my dad roofed houses when I was young um oh because
0: oh, yeah. so one of your one of your main characters learns to be a roofer and then bonds with one of the people teaching him how
4: right, and I've never seen that on t v you know or or movies uh something that took place on a roof like that. And like it was such a part of my uncle's Riffers. My dad. My dad also taught martial arts since I was five.
0: Did you learn how to fight?
4: I did. I was a competitive fighter growing up from the age of four. I think there's video of my first fight. Um my dad still teaches martial arts to this day in rural Oklahoma. Um, and my mom worked for um the tribe when I was young for the Seminole Nation. And then worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, when she worked, she was a secretary for the Chief of the Seminole Nation when I was young. You know now, what she does with the Bureau of Indian Affairs is she um kind of oversees like there was so much like crookedness done towards Native people and land ownership and mineral right ownership. <gasps> There's all of this record and things that have that have gone on since then, and my mom works in helping people kind of trying to figure out if there's land that they own that they didn't know they owned or mineral rights.
0: Is she still alive? She is. She must be so proud of you.
4: Oh, man, my parents are so overjoyed about the show. My dad said something to me the other day after the first season came out, and I was like, I can't. You know, it doesn't matter that we didn't get nominated for an Emmy. It doesn't matter that, like, what critic likes it or whatever. But, you know, what does matter, my dad, I mean, it does matter if we have critics like us, obviously. But, like, what I'm trying to say is, you know, this beats all of that. My dad one day said to me, he said, You know, you you gave Native people a reason to hold their head up. He's like, This show has given people, Native people, a reason to hold their head up a little higher. And I mean, like, you know, to hear my dad say that is like, that's better than any Emmy that I could get. Um, And just to also see the amount of people that love this show, um, especially in my community, because that's who I made it for. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm glad everyone loves it, but I made it for my community, Native people. And, uh, you know, every year at Halloween, there's people that dress up in these like fake dime store Indian clothing and they they are, quote unquote, Indian for Halloween. And we've all seen that growing up. We've all seen it. And my kids are going to have to see it. But all of a sudden, after season one, people, kids started dressing up as the reservation dogs. So many pictures flooded in uh, on social media Uh of of them dressed as the reservation dogs.
0: It's something you didn't have when you were growing up. Right.
4: I didn't have that, you know. and and it it might have made some sort of difference if I had. Um, I didn't have that, you know, but I did what I did have was the best storytellers in the world sitting in my grandma's kitchen, telling me stories about these amazing characters um, that were real and 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 or not. And I, I just try to transfer that to this show and to all my work.
0: Of the stories that you were told when you were growing up, did any of those stories get handed down through the generations dating back to the Trail of Tears and the forced removal of natives from the land, forced removal by the U.S. government?
4: For sure. I mean, I um, my great-grandmother, who didn't speak a lot of English— her name was Izora Bruner. She spoke English, but she, you know, it was like she spoke more confidently in Muscogee language, but she was, uh, you know, I grew up around her and she told us stories that were passed down from the Trail of Tears and, you know, babies that were being muffled because the soldiers would kill the babies if they, um, wouldn't quit crying at night. And they, you know, suffocated the babies by accident. And so, you know, these stories kind of are always there in the background. Um, And I think that it, just like um, I think people from the Jewish community and survivors of the Holocaust, it instills you with this um, knowledge that um, there is evil out there Mm -hmm. and there is a threat and your life can be flipped upside down, but also you can survive it like, like survival is possible. And as human beings, we have that capacity.
0: So the teenagers in your TV series, they want to leave the reservation. Um, What about you? Did you want to like, get away? Um, Because I know you're living back in Oklahoma, in Tulsa. um, And I know you went to college in Oklahoma. So did you feel this, this push and pull between leaving and staying?
4: Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like a lot of people, I wanted to leave, and art was kind of exploding for me. Like, I always wanted to be an artist. And when I got to college, I was kind of blown away with literature I'd never read and, like, um, music I'd never heard uh, coming from rural Oklahoma. And I just, like, it just kind of expanded my worldview, and I wanted to get out, and I wanted to travel and then I did. I traveled and I, you know, went to Oregon and different places, New York, and um, and what I came to realize or my grandma actually wrote me a letter while I was living in Oregon. And in the letter it said, someday you should come back home and write about these Indian churches around here. And it and something about that. And I was just getting into the idea of writing movies at that time. And something about that sentence that she wrote me just clicked and at that point I had been missing it and it is spe- and, it, and it is special and I was really realizing how special it is and I was like you know that when my grandma wrote me that I was like wow no one knows about where I'm from no one knows about the people that I come from you know I moved back home and I and I just like it took me to leave to realize what I had at home and how unique it is and how much kept secret it is, you know. Like, I like it's such an interesting community that I come from, and and I wanted to be back, and I wanted to make, I wanted to create the art that I create from here, and uh, I was stubborn about that. And at some point, I got a TV show that I got that FX let me shoot in Oklahoma, um, so it worked out.
0: Sterling Harjo, it's really just been great to talk with you. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Terry. For this
0: interview. Thank you for the series. I really love it. And I hope there's a season three. Awesome. Thank you so much. Sterling Harjo is the co-creator and showrunner, as well as a writer and director, of the FX series Reservation Dogs. Season one, as well as the current season two, are streaming on Hulu. Lou Reed, who died in 2013, would have been 80 this year. In part to commemorate that, some crucial, previously unreleased music by Reed has just been issued. It's titled Words and Music, May 1965. It collects 15 demos Reed recorded as a fledgling singer-songwriter who just two years later would lead the Velvet Underground into rock and roll history. The album includes what are the earliest known versions of what would become some of the Velvet Underground's best-known songs, such as Waiting for the Man, Heroin, and Pale Blue Eyes. Rock critic Ken Tucker has this review.
3: Pale Blue Eyes Words Music Luria Sometimes he is so happy Sometimes I feel so sad Sometimes I feel so happy with baby
2: plucking at an acoustic guitar and singing in an earnest croak. His future Velvet Underground bandmate, John Cale, sings harmony on the chorus. In 1965, Reed was 23 years old and freshly graduated from Syracuse University, where he'd come under the sway of his poet professor, Delmore Schwartz. Reed had played in rock bands since he was a teenager, and now he had a job in New York, churning out cheesy tunes for the pop song factory Pickwick Records. He was, in other words, both an idealistic artiste and a cynical pro.
3: I'm waiting for a man Twenty-six dollars in my hand Up to Lexington, one, two, five On that demo
2: in 1965, Reed sounds like a folk singer suffering an existential crisis. It's a far cry musically from what the song would sound like less than two years later on the fully formed debut album of the Velvet Underground.
3: I'm waiting for my man. In my hand, up to Lexington, one two five. Feel sick and dirty, more did than alive. I'm waiting for
2: my man. In 1965, Reed was clearly concentrating on lyrics more than melodies. He was working through his key influences. The garrulous rush of beat writers like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. The high and low lyricism of Delmore Schwartz and doo On the woozy Buttercup song, he mingles William Blake with Bob Dylan.
3: Never get emotionally involved With a man or woman, a beast or a child With cobblestone streets or subway turnstiles. And by World War III, you have developed style. Well, I got this friend, and I'll tell you, man, he's real hip. And throw Papa baby, that is his bit But never once, woo, does he ever blow his cool because he always follows his wondrous golden rule. Oh. oh, oh. And never
2: get When he with made these man. demos, Reed was living with his parents on Long Island. He introduces each of the songs by saying, Words and Music, Lou Reed, and mailed a copy of the resulting tapes to himself. The government postmark served as what was then known as the poor man's copyright. He knew, or at least hoped, he was protecting gold. I
3: know just Where I'm going I'm gonna try for the kingdom if I can Cause you know it makes me feel that I'm a man When I put the spike into my vein Then you know the things aren't quite the same When I'm rushing from my run And I feel like Jesus You can all go take a walk And I guess that I just don't know.
2: And I guess that I just don't know. That is Fundamental Lou Reed, the song Heroin in its earliest known recorded version. Its devastatingly casual description of an underworld of pain is startling. This collection is the first of what is being called the Lou Reed Archive Series, overseen by, among others, Reed's widow, the multimedia artist Laurie Anderson. She said to the Washington Post that for her, the importance of this album is that, quote, any kid starting a band, anyone, can now hear him searching around. I like the way that puts an inspirational spin on some of rock's most beautifully pessimistic music.
0: Ken Tucker reviewed a newly released album of early Lou Reed demos. It's called Words and Music, May 1965. Coming up, we hear from Buzz Bissinger, author of Friday Night Lights. His new book tells the story of college football stars turned Marines who endured some of the most savage fighting in World War II at the Battle of Okinawa. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Dave Davies has our next interview. Here's Dave to introduce it. My guest,
5: Buzz Bissinger, is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who's best known for Friday Night Lights, his book about Texas high school football, which was a bestseller and was adapted into a movie and a TV series. The title of Bissinger's latest book, The Mosquito Bowl, also refers to a football game, but it's not really a sports story. Bissinger writes about a group of young men who fought in the Pacific Theater of World War II assigned to the 6th Marine Division. Two regiments of the division were studded with former college football stars, and boasts and trash talk in 1944 about which regiment had the better talent led to a -a one-of-a-kind game played on a dirt and coral field on the island of Guadalcanal. It was such a celebrated event within the military, it was broadcast on the Armed Forces Radio Service. But the Marines who dueled that day, and those who rooted for them, would soon be sent to one of the bloodiest battles of the war— The invasion of Okinawa, where the casualty rate among the two regiments was over 50 percent. Bissinger's book is about the young men's lives in peace and war, with insightful descriptions of the World War II experience, from how service rivalries led to poor command decisions which cost lives, to the hardships Marines endured in training, on board transport ships, and in combat zones. Buzz Bissinger's writing has appeared in Vanity Fair, The New York Times Magazine, Sports Illustrated, and other publications. Among his other books are A Prayer for the City, Three Nights in August, Shooting Stars, and Father's Day. Buzz Bissinger, welcome back to Fresh Air. Hey, thank you. You know, people who know something about World War II know that the Battle of Okinawa was one of the bloodies. It was the last island that the U.S. Uh, needed to capture to establish bases and launch an assault on the Japanese mainland. Defenders were dug in and committed to fighting to the death. You tell us in the book that your father was actually a Marine who served at Okinawa. Um, it wasn't the reason that you pursued this story. But what What did he tell you? What did you learn about his experience?
6: My father basically never, ever talked about it. If he did, he would kind of almost make – fun of it. You know what? I knew he was at Okinawa. I didn't know what he did. I didn't know what his rank was. When I did the book proposal, I finally said, might as well look up his records, see who he was and what he did there. And this is not apocryphal. I got muster rolls. They're easy to get. And I look and it's my same namesake. There's his name and there he is in the 4th Regiment of the 6th Marine Division, which is one of the regiments that I was writing about. So that that put me over the top. I said, I got I to gotta do it. And he was a rifleman, so he was on the line. He was on the line involved in some of the horrific, horrific, terrifying combat uh, that I wrote about. 240,000 people died at Okinawa in 82 days. I mean, think about that. And a lot of them were civilians, almost all the Japanese uh, army and about 14,000 uh, American soldiers and seamen.
5: Wouldn't you ask your dad about it? What would he say?
6: You know, I would ask. You could tell he, he 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 did mention one. So I asked him once. I said, did you shoot? And he said, yeah. And I said, did you hit anything? <laughs> he said, I, I don't know. I wasn't about to find out. But I remember my mother telling a story. I think they were at his grandmother's and talked uh, – got to be about the war and he had to leave. He had to go downstairs and have a cigarette. You know, my my father was a pacifist. Uh, he hated firearms, but you know what? It didn't matter in World War II. You, you served with duty. That's what it was about. And uh, I am I gotta tell you, as I did the research, I'm so immensely proud of him that I wish I had probed. I wish I had probed. Because if you hit people who've been in World War II at, at the right time, um, they will talk about it particularly late in, late in life because they want to leave a, a legacy and I just wish I had tried to get him to talk more.
5: You know you and I are of the generation where our, a lot of our fathers served and Correct. all when I was growing up all the kids in my neighborhood their dads had served and I, I could never get my dad to talk but he was on an aircraft carrier all right. in the South Pacific same experience. All right. You know the the American armed forces that you say when the war began was about 334,000. It grew to 12 million. So a draft was instituted. Uh, You know, we think of everybody rushing to sign up after Pearl Harbor, but in fact, you had to get people, uh, not all of whom were excited about it. You write in the book that this draft was not exactly fairly administered or or
6: competent. No, I mean, it's like anything anything in life. There's politics involved. You know, uh, politicians would go to Roosevelt and saying, hey, you know, can we make doctors exempt? Can we make this exempt? How about people in the in the movie business? How about typewriter repairmen? And on and on and on. So you had to draft roughly 20 or 21 million people to get to 12 million. So it does question all this great generation stuff. The men who served, it was a great generation. But, you know, a lot of people, they didn't want to go. Who would want to go? So think of that, 21 million to get to $12 million.
5: Right. And um, among the most striking in avoiding service were the people who were at the service academy to the Army at West Point and the Navy at Annapolis. W- what was going on?
6: There were many mind-boggling elements of the book, including the, the relentless horror that these, uh, these men faced and how they died. Uh, and I get quiet because it affects me so young. But I found out in the course of doing this that if you wanted to play football and avoid the draft— and have a three-year exemption, the best place to go was West Point. And I had to read that several times. I said, wait a sec, West Point, you're training officers. Um, Desperately needed for the war no, effort, you wouldn't no, think. and I, I could never, Dave, I could never figure out, and I thought about this, why were the Army teams of 1944 and 45 their best in history? And one of the best in the history of college football. I couldn't figure it out. I figured they would all be gone because you had this three-year exemption, and they recruited like crazy, and their pitch was – Do you want to play for Army or do you want to get drafted? Well, I think I'll play for Army. They had one guy, Barney Poole, because of the rules that existed. Barney Poole played college football for eight years, eight years. He played three years at West Point. Then he purposely flunked out so he didn't have to fulfill the military requirement. Then he played at Mississippi State for two years. He had already played at Mississippi State. And then he went to the New York Giants. You know, the— the football game in the title, uh, the Mosquito Bowl, is
5: actually a very small part of the book, but um, you kind of use football and, and and its role in some of these players' life is sort of an organizing principle here.
6: Yeah, I mean, the Mosquito Bowl, look, part of the problem was there was no record of the game. Um, I know it was broadcast on radio, but those tapes are, are long gone. So the actual description of the game itself is short, but I always knew that I used the game. To branch out, it is the glue to explore the lives of some of these men, the America they came from, to get into things like the draft and inter-service rivalry, which all affected them, and then move forward into their playing football, which really is a small part of the book, into the Marines and into the morass and horror of of Okinawa.
5: You know, the group of men that you follow in some detail, maybe there's six or eight of them. um, they were in college football. That was actually bigger than pro football at the time, wasn't it? it was at the actual-
6: time, college football was huge. I mean pro football was basically for uh, convicted felons, you know, basically. No one – at that time, and this is hard to believe, college coaches told their guys, don't play pro football. It's a waste. It's a waste of time. Get an education. And I can tell you these guys worked hard because I saw their letters. I saw their transcripts. You know, if you if you flunked a course, you were out. Um, college football was it. The Army-Notre Dame game was like nothing. It was always played in New York, 70,000-filling Yankee Stadium. So to be a football star, and these players who played in the Mosquito Bowl, three were all Americans, seven were captains ranging from Brown uh, to Notre Dame uh, to California— I think 18 were either drafted and would be drafted by the pros. I mean you were you were talking immense talent. So the idea of these two regiments filled with great football players playing against each other in the front of 1,500 people and everything simulated like a real game. I said, I got to get a piece of this because the upshot was – and it's just so tragic. Of the 65 who were in that game, 15 were later killed. And when I read that, I said – I have to try to do this if nothing else is a memorial and a constant reminder of what war is like and what these men faced and what they went through without complaint. And the most immense sense of duty I've seen except for maybe 9-11 and the firemen at 9-11, same thing. Mm-hmm. We will sacrifice ourselves at any cost.
5: Were football players sought after by the Marines? Do you know?
6: I actually think it was the other way around. I mean, I think that, that football players, given sort of their, their machoism and, frankly, their sense of violence, uh, wanted to join the Marines. Interestingly, you know, the Marines are part of the Navy. And this was fascinating to me. The Navy felt—Navy saved college football in World War II. The Navy felt that football—I'm This I'm not making this up—football was the single best source of combat training. Because it teaches discipline, it teaches teamwork, it's about violence, it's about playing through pain, and, you know, all the other cliches that we associate with war. The Army wanted no piece of it. But you could join an officer training program in the Navy and go to a college and be allowed to have extracurricular activities, including football. So let's talk about the football game that's referred to in the title. There were these
5: two regiments of the 6th Marine Division, the 4th and the 29th, that had all these college football stars, some in each. These were all Marines, they're on the same
6: side in the war. Was this a friendly rivalry or was it a blood feud or something uh, in between? I think I think in between. I mean it was a little bit friendly, but these guys are Marines, you know. So you know, so it's pride. This is the 4th regiment we are loaded. We got a guy named John McLowry who played for, played at Brown and the New York Giants. We got we got Dave Schreiner. We got a lot of good young players. We got captains. Excuse my language. We're going to kick the twenty ass and the twenty yeah, you're not. We would beat you any game any day you want to play. And they argued, and it was pretty friendly. There were no punches thrown. At least I don't think there were, but. Morale was flagging. They were on Guadalcanal. They're training. They've been there a long time. Training gets boring. I mean, it gets boring. And, you know, um, dynamiting rivers to to catch fish gets boring. Or finding a wild boar and eating it gets boring.
5: So so, so this
6: idea of a football game gets talked up. And it was played Christmas Eve 1944.
5: Describe the physical. I think that was
6: a beautiful symbolic time. Christmas Eve of 1944, let's do something special. You're a long way from home. And not only did they play each other, they had a field that they built out of dirt and coral, regulation field. They coral built. is really hard and oh, sharp. Oh yeah, coral sharp. And a lot of guys—that's how most guys got hurt because it blows up with infection because it's guadacanal and it's hot. They built goalposts. It was broadcast on radio all over the Pacific. Uh, they had a PA system. They had programs. They announced the players. Fifteen hundred Marines came drunk. No one cared. Gambling. No one cared. Guys lost a lot of money, and they, it started out as touch, but these are Marines, so it pretty much devolved into tackle, and I think they beat the stuffing out of each other for 60 minutes and loved it.
5: No pads, no helmets?
6: No, I mean, I, I think at that point, the quartermaster didn't know he had to supply helmets and pads <laughs> uh, to men fighting in, in, uh, in the Pacific. But the point to me was they loved it. This was the last time that I think they were allowed to be boys they were allowed to be boys doing something they loved and they loved football because uh, three months later, they were at Okinawa about to participate in something they couldn't have possibly imagined. They were men again and it struck me they were boys. I would get their pictures. I have, I have a picture of D- Dave Schreiner next to me as I wrote and, I, and it, this isn't just said here. I would look into it. He was a boy. He, he, had, he had so much life ahead of him. and. To know what happened to him, to know what happened to to, to others, it, it's such a tragedy. I know wars have to be fought. I know this war had to be fought. I understand that, but the word that comes to mind is waste. This was a life that was wasted. The same for the other fourteen players who died. The same for the four thousand Marines who died, and the five thousand uh, Navy seamen who died, and the four thousand Army soldiers who died. Just so, a waste. Guys are all younger than your sons. Oh yeah, they were. My father was nineteen. Yeah, nineteen. You know, holding a rifle, nineteen, trying to kill people. These guys were in their early twenties, and and by the way, they're twenty three, twenty four. They're in charge of fifty or sixty kids, kids, and they're in charge of them, and that's responsibility for life and death. But you know, we talk a lot about uh, America. There were flaws in America. There was racism in America. As you pointed out, a lot of guys were getting out of the draft. But these men were magnificent. And a lot of the book is about their magnificence and the heroism and the tragedy. You
5: know, a lot of your writing has been about people in present times. You do immersive
6: journalism about people you can speak to directly. This is really a work of history. Um, How is it different for the first three years, I kept saying, what the hell am I doing? I mean, it's different. I do immersion journalism. I'm there as events are unfolding because I think it's a great way for me to, to write, to be visceral, to write cinematically because I'm present. And I did that in Friday Night Lights about high school football. I did it in the Prayer for the City when I followed um, Ed Rendell when he was mayor in the 1990s. I didn't have that. I knew going in that there was only one survivor of the, of the game and I did interview him, and he was a wonderful guy, Dave Mears, who died uh, about six months later. So I really debated, well, if no one's alive, how are you gonna get at these guys? How are you gonna get at anything? Well, then I realized that that their families had kept everything, they had kept documents, but I had to read a ton, and you're reading a ton to maybe get a single tidbit here, a, a single detail there. Now, I must say, I love the research. You know, writing is writing. There's a good day, there's a bad day, there's a good day, there's two bad days. I loved the research. It was the ultimate hunt and peck. You just sit there and you oh, can I get something? Can I get something? And then you get a little strand of something, and then you pull on the strand, and it gets bigger and bigger. And I must say, the amount of military records that are online is phenomenal. A ton has been put online, and I went through tens of thousands of pages, and it was really fun, to, as I say. Oh, man, that's, that's cool. I can get this. I can get this. There's this depiction I was looking for. It's different. You can't be as cinematic because I'm not going to make things up. You know, I'm not going to make up what happened during the game. Maybe some journalist. I mean, who the hell's going to know? Everyone's dead. <laughs> uh, but you know, so you get frustrated. And there were moments where I said, "God, I wish they were alive. I wish, I wish I could expand upon this. I wish I could get more of the game." But you can only do uh, what you can do in a circumstance like this. Do you think your dad might have been at the game? God, I hope so. I've thought about that <laughs> for five years. I don't know. Knowing my dad, I know a couple of things. He loves sports, and he liked to drink, and he liked to gamble. So that's three for three. So if anyone would have been at that game, <laughs> it would have been uh, my dad. I think about it all the time, and I say, man, wouldn't that be incredible Yeah. if he was at that game? But it was incredible enough when I saw his name on that muster roll. Same division, same regiment. And this was not why I did the book. This was not searching for my father. But it did. It did put me over the top. And the other thing was is that there's there's a picture of the game. There's a picture of two players shaking hands right before the game. Dave Schreiner is one, Tony Bukovic is the other. They looked like my dad. They were young. Yeah. And I said, Jesus, that that that's that's my dad. I mean, that that's what my dad would have looked like then. And that really was really moved by that, and there was a real poetry to that.
5: Well Buzz Bissinger, thanks so much for speaking with us again. Well, thank you. It was great.
0: Buzz Bissinger's new book is called The Mosquito Bowl. He spoke with Dave Davies. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Roberto Shorok, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C. V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross.